welcome to the Blindfold Chess Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Robert James Fisher, also known as Bobby Fisher. He was an American chess player who is widely considered to be one of the greatest chess players of all time. Born in Chicago on March 9, 1943, he learned how to play chess at the age of six and quickly demonstrated exceptional talent for the game. Uh, before I go too much further, I do want to call out, Fisher as a chess player was phenomenal and pushed the game to new heights. Um, as a human, though, Fisher was not great. Anti-Semitism, applauding the 9-11 attacks, Holocaust denial, and claiming he was still the world champion 20 years after his forfeiture, he is a very difficult person to like. I will do my best this episode to uh, separate the art from the artist, but he makes it difficult. That being said, okay. Fisher began playing in competitive chess tournaments at the age of 8, and by the age of 13 he had become the youngest player to win the United States Junior Chess Championship. In 1958, at the age of 15, Fisher won his first United States Championship, and he went on to win that tournament a total of 8 times in his career by at least a full point margin, all of this happening from the ages of 14 to 23. This included between 1963 to 1964, where he competed a feat that no one has replicated, getting a perfect score in the U.S. Championship with 11 wins, no losses, and no draws. In 1960, at the age of 17, Fisher became the youngest player ever to represent the United States in the Chess Olympiad. He won the gold medal for his performance in that tournament. He went on to represent the United States in the Olympiad a total of eight times in his career, winning a total of four gold medals, one silver medal, and one bronze medal. Fisher's first major international tournament success came in 1963 when he won the Interzonal Tournament in Yugoslavia with a score of 17.5 out of 22. This victory qualified him for the Candidates Tournament, which he won in 1971, earning him the right to challenge the then world champion Boris Spatsky for the World Chess Championship. The 1972 World Chess Championship, held in Reykjavik, Iceland, was one of the most famous chess matches in history. Fischer threatened to not play, but eventually agreed to compete, and after losing the first game and forfeiting the second game, Fischer won the third game and then proceeded to dominate the match, winning 12.5 to 8.5. Fisher's victory over Spatsky made him the first American to officially win the World Chess Championship. His victory saw the membership in the U.S. Chess double in 1972, with it peaking in 1974. After his World Championship victory, he made demands to FIDE before the next championship in 1975 that included, number one, the match continues until one person wins 10 games. Number two, there is no limit to the number of games that are played. Number three, if there is a 9-9 tie, the champion retains the title. Fide opted to not accept those demands, and as a result, Fischer declined to play, forfeiting the title to Karpov. After that, Fischer dropped out of the spotlight for close to 20 years. In 1992, he resurfaced to play Spatsky in a, quote, revenge match of the 20th century taking place again in Yugoslavia. This was against the United Nations embargo, 
and United States law to have commercial activities in that country. Fisher demanded that this match be considered the official world championship match since he was never defeated, but Fide declined. Fisher won the match 10 wins, 5 losses, and 15 draws, along with the massive prize fund, but now he has a warrant out for his arrest. While on the run, he fled to Hungary and the Philippines. That was where he made his comments about the United States deserving the 9-11 attacks. In retaliation, U.S. Chess passed a motion to cancel his rights to membership. He was detained in Japan and later granted citizenship in Iceland, where he remained until his death in 2008 at the age of 64. In addition to that world championship, Fisher won a number of other major international tournaments in his career, and he won the United States Open Chess Tournament four times, the Chess Olympiad four times, the Interzonal twice, and the Candidates Tournament once. He understood the game at such a high level that many at the top level had a hard time keeping up. FIDE's January 1972 rating list had Fisher's rating at 2785, a full 115 points above second place Spatsky. For reference, if you were to subtract 115 points from Spatsky's rating, you would have to drop 38 places lower to number 40 on the rating list. Fisher's influence on the game is probably one of the highest in the world. He increased the membership in the U.S. chess from around 15,000 in 1971 to almost 60,000 in 1973. This era is so-called the quote-unquote Fisher boom. He popularized the use of Fisher random chess variant, which is where the uh, back row of pieces are randomly arranged in a combination of up to 960 positions. And he was a strong advocate for increasing the prize money for chess tournaments, which helped elevate the status of the game and attract more talented players to the sport. Fisher's contributions to the game of chess have left a lasting legacy in not just the chess world, but the world at large, spawning references in movies, books, musicals, and being the go-to reference whenever someone talks about chess. In today's game, we are looking at the Brilliancy Prize from the 1963 to 1964 U.S. Championship. Robert Byrne versus Bobby Fischer. Now, if we're ready, let's begin. One pawn to d4. Knight f6. Two pawn to c4. Pawn to g6. Three pawn to g3. Pawn to c6. Four bishop g2. Pawn to d5. Five pawn c captures d5. Pawn c captures d5. Six knight c3. Bishop g7. Seven pawn to e3. 
Castle Kingside. Eight Knight G to E two. Knight C six. Nine Castle Kingside. Pawn to B six. Ten Pawn to B three. At this point in the game, it is fairly equal. The pawn structures are the same, the minor pieces are essentially the same, so at this point we'll start to see some deviation. Bishop a 6. Eleven, Bishop a 3. Rook e8. Twelve, Queen d2. Pawn to e5. We have an annotation by Fisher after the move e5. Quote, I was a bit worried about weakening my queen pawn, but felt that the tremendous activity obtained by my minor pieces would permit white no time to exploit it. 12, e6 would probably lead to a draw. That quote kind of feeds into the philosophy of risk and reward, or the premise of you have to make weaknesses in your own camp in order to take advantage of a weakness in your opponent's camp. Thirteen, pawn d captures e5. Knight captures e5. Fourteen, rook f to d1. Knight d3. Fifteen, queen c2. Knight captures f2. We are starting the sequence of why this game earned the brilliancy prize. Knight captures f2 came as a huge shock, and the quote by Fisher is, The key to Black's previous play. The complete justification for this sack does not become apparent until White resigns. Can you see what Black's follow-up will be? Sixteen, King captures f2. Knight g4 check. Seventeen, King g1. Knight captures e3. After the move, knight captures e3. What pieces has black's knight forked? That would be the bishop on g2, the rook on d1, and the queen on c2.
18, queen d2. Knight captures g2. This move was very unexpected. The players in the hall expected Fisher to capture the rook on d1. His opponent, Robert Byrne, has the quote, This dazzling move came as the shocker. The culminating combination is of such depth that even at the very moment at which I resigned, both grandmasters who were commentating on the play for the spectators in a separate room believe I had won the game. Can you see why Fisher decided to go for the bishop on g2 instead of the rook on d1? Nineteen, king captures g2. Pawn to d4. We don't quite see the full understanding of the knight captures on g2 until the move d4. While the pawn does attack the white knight on c3, it can be captured in three different ways by the white pieces. But the objective was not to attack the knight. What was the objective? That was to open the a8 to h1 diagonal for the light squared bishop that white now no longer has. Twenty knight captures d4. Bishop b7 check. Twenty one king f1. Queen d7. White resigns. It was such a subtle move to end the game. What does queen d7 accomplish? That threatens the queen to come into h3 for check. That check would be disastrous for white. After white were to retreat to king to g1, black has bishop captures on d4, which pulls the queen off of the protection of the g2 square, allowing black to mate. Fisher does have a continuation after queen to d7 of 22 queen to f2, queen to h3 check, 23 king to g1, then rook to e1 check, brilliant move, 24 rook captures e1, then bishop captures d4, with mate to follow shortly. This game helped demonstrate that the 18-year-old Fisher understood the game far better than his colleagues. That understanding and sheer domination continues to show to this day as his impact on the game is still felt by millions. So that is all that we have for this week. 
tune in next time where we will continue to work on our blindfold skills and look at another game of the Masters.